I, I, I love, uh, I'm actually more a tennis player than a, than a table tennis player, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Roger Federer because his mother is South African, right? So uh, I quite like him, and, and a um, couple of months back, it was the Wimbledon final, and uh, Roger Federer played Novak Djokovic in the final. Now, I just want you to imagine, I mean, who of you know, know tennis? Who of you have watched tennis or so? Most of you, I'm sure, at least have an idea what tennis is, a, is about and so on. But imagine... Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic playing in the Wimbledon final, but Roger is constantly watching the scoreboard instead of keeping his eye on the ball. What will the outcome of the match be? He'll lose, right? He'll get slaughtered. He'll lose hands down. Because you don't play tennis with your eye on the scoreboard. You play tennis with your eye on the ball. And yet, isn't it how we sometimes try and do Christianity? We try and play the game with our eye on the scoreboard instead of with our eye on the ball. We try and play it trying to figure out how are we doing. Are we winning? Are we doing okay? Are we ahead? Instead of keeping our eye on the ball. <clears throat> In other words, we, we, live, we often, as Christians, are tempted into living Christianity with the wrong focus, with our eye on the wrong thing. And that's a little bit of what I want to share about uh, this morning. And... Um, I'm going to read from John chapter 15, <clears throat> the very well-known portion of the true vine. Uh, have you noticed that the Gospel of John doesn't have any parables? The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have lots of parables, but John doesn't have one parable. This is the closest that John gets to a parable. It's actually a, a sort of a, um, a allegory, um, extended allegory. Uh, but it's the closest that John comes to having a parable in his gospel. And um, in it, listen, listen carefully. Now, before I, read, before I read from the Word of God, I, I just want to remind you that what I'm going to read is the Word of God. It came through man, but it's the Word of God. It's supernatural. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's not just like reading the newspaper. And sometimes we're tempted because we read so many other things to read God's word in the same way that we read other things. And we, we miss some of the awesome power in God's word. So just, just open up your hearts. Uh, remind yourself that this is God's word that we're reading. And that it, that it applies to our life. John 15 verse 1 to 8 says, <clears throat> I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. <clears throat> whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now this is the 
seventh and last of Jesus' famous I am statements. As, as many of you will know, Jesus has seven I am statements in, in the Gospel of John. The first one in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on and, and, and mentions a few others as well. The scriptures are up there. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the last one here is he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. <clears throat> and when, when I preach, I like to not... Um, I like to say to, to the pastors when I talk to them about preaching uh, at, at our ministry training program and so on, when, when you preach, you don't just give a message. You also give a method. And what I mean by that is whatever method I use to get to the message I'm preaching, that method is implicit in my preaching. And what I want you to receive this morning is not just the message that I'm going to give you. I believe that we as Christians have the privilege and the responsibility to read the Bible for ourselves, to in interpret Scripture for ourselves, so we can live Scripture for ourselves and in our families and in our, in our church and in our communities. I mean, we sometimes forget how privileged we are to have such easy and, you know, just easy access to the Word of God. I mean, you think about guys like Tyndale who were killed for translating the Bible from the original languages into English. They put a rope around his neck, choked him to death, and burnt him at the stake. For translating, the church did that, for translating in the, in the Middle Ages, for translating the Bible into English. He had to flee for his life a couple of times because he, he, he was daring to translate the Bible into English. The same with Luther who translated it into German. And we sit at home and we have five or ten Bibles, different translations and so on. And we take it for granted and we forget how privileged we are that we can actually read Scripture for ourselves. <clears throat> and therefore, I want to encourage you. Make use of that privilege. Learn to read Scripture well. Okay, who of you are going to read the Bible for the rest of your life? Put up your hand. If you're going to read the Bible for the rest of your life. Okay? Now, something that you're going to do for the rest of your life, you might as well learn to do it well, right? Right? And to a very large extent, the quality of your Christian life depends on how well you read the Bible and obey the Bible to a very large extent. So that's a good investment to make. So that's why I'm, I'm saying I, I want to, you to, to learn not just, uh, just not, not just receive a message, but also a method. Now one thing I want you to see, and this is probably the biggest mistake I find people making when they read the Bible, almost all Christians, or many Christians. When we read the Bible, we must not first and foremost ask, what does this mean to me? That's the wrong question to ask. If you ask only that question, and if you start with that question, you'll misunderstand a lot of what the Bible says, <clears throat> and you'll misapply it. Before you, you can come to the here and now and what it means to me, you have to first go to the there and then of the original audience, of the author and the original audience, and say, what did John mean by what he was writing? What did Jesus mean by what he was saying to them, to the original audience? And then you can say, okay, how does that apply to me? <clears throat> Another way of saying it is the meaning of Scripture cannot be found in the here and now. You cannot read your own situation into Scripture. The meaning has to be found in the there and then. And once you've found the meaning in the there and then, then you can draw out all those powerful implications and applications for the here and now. Does that, does that make sense? Now, let's, let's apply that. When Jesus was speaking... 
Who was he speaking to? How many Christians were in his audience? None. How many people were there that had the Spirit of God inside of them in his audience? That's another way to ask it. How many? Zero. Okay. Let me just read you two, two verses from, or two passages from um, John's Gospel. John 7, verse 37. This is a well-known portion. It says, On the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living waters will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up till that time, the Spirit had not uh, been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. That was the Spirit couldn't be given until Jesus was glorified. And at that stage, the Spirit, in the new covenant of sense of the word of being inside of us, had not yet been given. Listen to what he says in, in chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he, I will, sometime in the future I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him or receive him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will, sometime in the future, be in you. <clears throat> okay, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because we must realize to whom Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to Jews. Right? Now that has, we're going to see what the application, what he says here is very powerful and has very powerful application for us. Now in this allegory there are four characters. Jesus, the true vine, Father, the vine dresser, the unfruitful branches, and then the fruitful branches. So let's just, just look at that quickly. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Notice that little word true. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, doesn't that mean that there's another vine which is not the true vine? Right? There's another vine that's not the true vine. I am the true vine, Jesus says. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you see that the Old Testament is full of God describing Israel with vine imagery. I'm just going to um, give you two examples. Sorry, I forgot my water bottle. I'm just going to give you two examples from the book of Isaiah. Um, where God speaks of Israel with, with vine imagery. The first one, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, is in Isaiah 5. I'm going to read this 1 to 5. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I, uh, than, than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you, what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge and, I will destroy, uh, and it will be destroyed. I will uh, break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will, take, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah 
are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And, and what we see here is this is before the, the exile to, to Babylon. God says, you are my vine, Israel. You are my vine, but I just see bad fruit. I've done everything that was necessary for you to produce good fruit, but you're filling the land of Israel with just bad fruit. You are my vineyard, but you're not bearing the fruit that you should. And then in, verse, in chapter 27, listen to this. This is a bit more hopeful. It says, in that day, it's talking about a future day. It says, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. See, there's a new vine now. And this time, it's not a vine that bears bad fruit. It's a fruitful vineyard. It says, I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. I own, if only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In, in days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Saying God, God is saying throughout Israel's history, unfortunately, Israel didn't bear the fruit that God intended for it to bear. It just bore bad fruit for the most part. But God is saying there's coming a day where there's going to be a new vine. And, and where, where Israel filled the land of Egypt with bad fruit at that stage, God is saying there's a new vine, a new Israel, a true Israel, that will fill not the land of Israel, but the whole world. With good fruit. Can you see that? And Jesus is saying, I am that new vine. I am the true Israel. In other words, the history of Israel was filled with people who were not quite good enough, who did not quite fulfill the law. I mean, even the best of them. Think about King David. I mean, he, if you think about like, like a, a really a successful Israelite, then you think of David. And he really was. I mean, killing Goliath. You know, subduing all of the enemies of God before Israel. But even King David murdered people, committed adultery. There never was an Israelite who fully kept the law until Jesus. And there Jesus becomes Israel reduced to one and he keeps the law on behalf of Israel, fulfills the law, earning the right to all the good things of the law. And now he says, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. I am Israel reduced to one. And the way into Israel is now through me. If you want to be part of this fruitful vine that will fill not only Israel with fruit, but the whole world with fruit, then you have to come in through me. You have to be part of me. How many disciples, how many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve, right? What's the significance of that number? What does that remind you of? What is, what is the twelve... Apostles symbolic of the 12 tribes, right? When did Israel become a nation? It's with the Exodus. Remember the Passover, the lamb being slain, right? And then going out and then receiving the law and making the old covenant with God at Mount Sinai on Pentecost. Remember all of that? When was Jesus killed? Passover. When was the Spirit given? Pentecost. Do you think that that was just coincidental? Can you see what Jesus is doing? He's leading a new exodus. He's recreating Israel. 
But this time, in himself and with the ability to do what those under the old covenant could not do. To fill the world with fruit in him. Can you see that? So, let's uh, look at what it says. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I've just put a few of the Greek words there in in brackets, um, because there are some things you can't translate. And if you look at those Greek words, when he says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. The, the Greek verb there is ira. And then he says, every branch that does bear f- fruit, he prunes. It, it's kathare. Uh, and those words, you can see, clearly see they, they, they're related. And then he's, when he says, um, already you are clean, it's another related word, kathairoi. In fact, kathare can mean, in an agricultural context, it can mean pruning, or it can also mean cleansing. Okay? So what, what is he saying here? He's saying, I'm constantly cleaning my vine either by cutting away the unfruitful branches or by taking the branches that are fruitful and pruning them so they can bear more fruit. And how do I do it? Through His Word. That is how you are clean. That's how you are cleansed and pruned. In other words, here's what I want you to get. Listen to this. Don't miss this. You're pruned if you do and you're pruned if you don't. You're pruned if you do and you're pruned if you don't. If you don't bear fruit, you're pruned away <laughs> completely. If you do bear fruit, you prune so you can bear more fruit. But you're pruned if you do and you're pruned if you don't. There's no way of getting away from being pruned. Alright? And, and we, we know, we know that being pruned is not pleasant. Now you can romanticize it. I mean, sometimes we do that with being crucified. Take up your cross and be crucified. And we romanticize it. I mean, what, what is the cross supposed to do? What is the purpose of the cross? Why do you put someone on a cross? Just to kill them, right? <laughs> and it's the same with pruning. Everything that is dead in your life, God prunes away. He cuts away so that you can become more fruitful and bear more fruit. Um, I remember when, when we were at Varsity in, in the hostel and um, after being Andre's roommate in Ace Marais, I, I moved into a, a, a house, a student house with a couple of other guys. And uh, yeah, we, li- we used to love to play video games, especially those strategy games, you know, Age of Empires. What were all those strategy games? Um, I used to play a lot of them, you know, hours and hours sit in front of those games, real-time strategy games and play strategy games. And you know what? It's such a waste of time because what do you get out of it? What do you have to show after those hours of sitting and playing those games? Nothing. Zip. You know, and I, and I, and I look back on that time and I sort of knew, you know, it's, it's actually wasting time and so on. And, and so often we have things in our lives like that. We know it's not quite right. We know it's not really productive. We know it's not really bearing fruit. But we're not really doing much about it. And then God comes and he prunes it, us. And he cuts it away. And I haven't played games for years. <laughs> 
God has pruned me. God has pruned me. He's taken that away. That was an unfruitful part of my life that God has just cut away. And because of that, I'm more fruitful. And sometimes, oftentimes, the things that we need to be pruned of are things that we actually like. Things that we actually enjoy, but they're not bearing fruit in our lives. And the reason why God has to cut them away is because we won't let go of them ourselves because we enjoy them too much. Is there anything that you have been pruned from? Has God ever pruned things away in your life? I actually want you to just just turn to the person next to you, just in a minute or two, just quickly share something that God has pruned in your life. Some of you I see are, are sort of laughing and giggling about it now, but I'm sure when it was happening, when the pruning was happening, it, was, you, it wasn't so pleasant and you weren't laughing so much. Um, then just, when, when Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is cast away. One of the mistakes we often make is we, we often read Paul into John. Because Paul talks about being in Christ, right? Isn't that so? A lot of times, being in Christ, being in him, and him being in us and we being in him. Which sounds very much like the language used here. But remember who Paul was writing to. Paul was writing after the cross and the giving of the Spirit. Jesus is speaking before the cross, before the blood of the cross was shed and before the Spirit was given. So, so be, be, care, be careful not to... to just immediately read Paul into Jesus. Jesus is talking about a new Israel that is creating. Um, and what is he talking about when he talks about those branches that don't remain in him? I mean, throughout the whole gospel, and by the way, when you read books of the Bible, read the whole book as a whole and get what, what it's trying to say. There, there's a theme of disciples of Jesus while he's walking the earth who come and attach them to him and start following him, start listening to his teachings, but then fall away. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. One is in John chapter 6, verse 66. It says, from that time, because this is where he says, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the disciples, I mean, imagine saying that to a Jew. Imagine saying that to, the, to a Jew, and they're thinking, hang on, doesn't Leviticus strictly and explicitly prohibit us from drinking blood, and now this guy wants us to drink his blood? What's on with him? What kind of a freaky rabbi is he? And listen to the response. It says, From that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is a hard saying, Jesus. They didn't remain in him. And Jesus turns to his, uh, the twelve apostles and says, You're going to leave as well? And Peter says, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Okay? Then in chapter 8, verse 30, I'll just read that to you as well. It says, Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he's saying to guys here who, who seem to believe in him, verse 42, it says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and um, I am now here. I have come, I have not come on my own, but he has sent me. And later on, those same guys who supposedly believed in him and became his disciples wanted to kill him. said, you are of your father the devil. That's why you want to kill me. So these were also disciples who came and attached themselves to Jesus. And they listened to his teaching and they believed in some of what he said. 
But then it turns out they weren't true disciples because they weren't keeping the word and they were falling away. And then the ultimate example probably is in um, John chapter 13. Let me just read to you verse 2 where it says, The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And then in verse 20 it says, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts Anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Is that the right verse? No. Sorry, verse 10 to 11. Jesus said, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and, and, that, uh, and that was why he said not everyone is clean. And it's just after that that Judas leaves to go and betray Jesus. Can you see, that's why Jesus, there are Judas branches. There are branches who on the surface are in Christ, but in their hearts they're not really. I mean, Judas walked with Jesus for probably three years plus. He saw the miracles. He heard all the teachings. I mean, he had face time with Jesus every day. He slept with Jesus under the stars. He walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. He was even the guy who kept the money bag. And what does he do? He turns around. He doesn't abide in Jesus, but he turns around and he betrays Jesus. And you know, the sad thing is, Jesus didn't just experience that once. Jesus experiences that millions of times. Where people turn away from him. Judas branches. And here, when Jesus is, in, in John chapter 15, when Jesus is talking to his other disciples, Jesus has already left. And what he's doing is them, with them is he's assuring them, yeah, they are Judas branches. And this is what will happen to them. But you are in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. Stay in me. Because that's the only way you can actually bear fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We must abide in Jesus if we want to bear fruit. I heard a guy saying once that the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible in your own strength. It's not difficult as though... You know, if it were difficult, you can try harder and and, and it can happen. But it's impossible in our own strength unless we abide in the vine, unless we abide in Jesus, unless He actually lets His life flow through us and change us and causes us to bear fruit. So you cannot bear fruit by looking at the scoreboard. You cannot bear fruit by keeping your eyes on the scoreboard and seeing, how am I doing? And you cannot bear fruit by trying harder in your own strength. No willpower, you know, self-help. Uh, I love what Dr. Kone Becker says. He says when he goes to, to the Christian section in Kum books or in, uh, in, in uh, what's the exclusive books or something, and he finds self-help books there, he takes them out and he puts them where they belong, in the science fiction section, <laughs> in the fantasy section. <laughs> because in the kingdom of God, there's no self-help. There's God helping you. And God working in you now, the grace of God doing it in us and through us. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 12 and 13? He says, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. And with God through His grace is constantly working in us to want what He wants and to be able to do what He wants us to. In other words, to be able to bear fruit. That's the grace of God. So in other words, the grace of God doesn't only forgive our sins. I love the way Dallas Willard put it. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's only opposed to earning. You get that? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In other words, grace, by the grace of God, we don't need to earn favor with God. But also, the grace of God goes further and it causes us to bear fruit and be fruitful. As we're connected to the vine, the grace of God flows through us and it causes us to bear fruit. In other words, grace, true grace of God produces effort. And it produces fruitfulness. So, um, you know, so often we do it like this, you know. Oh, I must just try harder. Willpower. I must have more willpower. I must have more discipline. You know, have you ever seen a tree that goes like, I must bear fruit. And then a fruit pops out. Whew, that was hard work. Oh my goodness. Let me try that again. More effort, more strain. Another fruit. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. A tree doesn't have to try and bear fruit. It bears fruit because it's a healthy tree. And it's a, Jesus is saying the same thing with us. You're not going to bear more fruit by trying harder. In other words, here's the, the point. I was listening to a, um, a guy talk about this. And he said he was trying to figure this whole thing about the vine out and abiding in the vine and the fruitfulness and all that. And he was really, he was battling with it. And, and this older mentor of his who had been walking with the Lord for decades came to him. And he, and he just made a sort of a, a side comment, which sort of put the whole thing into perspective for him. He said, so often, we focus on the, long, the wrong end of the branch. So often in our Christian walk, we focus on the wrong end of the branch. And if you just look at that picture there, there are two ends of the branch. The one is the end that has the leaves and the fruit. The other end is the end that's connected to the vine. And so often, we're so focused on the end that's supposed to bear fruit. In other words, we're keeping our eyes on the scoreboard. Instead of focusing on the end of the branch that connects to the vine. Because that determines whether you actually bear fruit or not. Why is it wrong to play tennis with your eye constantly on the scoreboard? I mean, isn't that what you want? Isn't, don't you want the scoreboard to start ticking in your favor? Don't you want to get more points than your opponent? You know? So, so that's, that's the goal of what you're trying to accomplish on the tennis court. So why not keep your eye on the scoreboard while you're playing? Well, the reason is simple. The scoreboard is just an effect. What happens to the ball is the cause. Right? What happens to the ball is the cause. And what happens to the ball determines what happens on the scoreboard. Well, what happens on the end of the branch that is connected to the vine, what either happens there or doesn't happen there, determines what happens on the other end of the branch. If the connection with the vine, the true vine is there, and there's a real connection, then there will be fruit. And not only fruit, but much fruit. That's what Jesus says. Those who abide in me will bear much fruit. 
So Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And just notice the, the progression. He says in verse 2, whoever bears fruit gets pruned so he can bear more fruit. So you start with fruit and then you get pruned so you can bear more fruit. And then he says, whoever abides in me bears much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. That's the progression of life and fruitfulness that, that God works in, in, in our lives. The guy called D.A. Carson says, that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true faith, true discipleship, true connection to the vine. Okay. Those who are, Jesus says, for without me you can do nothing. Apart from me you can do nothing. Those who are not connected to Jesus, they can do much in life. They can even do good things. Help people who I need. I have soup kitchens. Those who are not in Christ can do a lot of good things, but they can do nothing of eternal value. Romans says it, Paul says it in a different way. He says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Have you ever noticed that verse? Do you know what that means? Whatever is not of faith is sin. That means that even the good works that those do who are not in Christ is sin. How, how on earth can God say that? Because you can do good works that make you look good or you can do good works that make God look good. And if you do it in your strength, you get the glory. But if you do it in God's strength and by His grace, He gets the glory. And everything that does not glorify God is sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why Jesus says, the starting point, is to make sure that you focus on the right end of the ranch. Make sure that you're connected to the vine. Because everything else flows out of that. It flows out of that. I have seen in my um, counseling and time spent with, with uh, many Christians that we often struggle with performance versus relationship. So often we as Christians have a performance mentality instead of a relationship mentality. And we are conditioned by the world that we live in. That is a world full of conditional love. If you're good enough, I'll love you. If you're good enough, I'll accept you. If your performance is good enough, then you'll, you'll be in. You'll be loved. Even in many of our homes, it works like that when we, when we grow up. If you perform well enough, then you'll be loved. Conditional love. And we get conditioned with conditional love to have a performance mentality. You want to perform to be loved to be accepted, to be in relationship. You want to earn the right to be in relationship. And God comes in His kingdom and He turns it upside down and He says it doesn't work like that. You don't perform to earn relationship. Performance is a natural consequence of right relationship. Right performance flows as a fruit out of right relationship, not the other way around. And I, I, I remember I struggled for years with this. For years, I struggled and I, I had this performance mentality, this performance orientation. And, and you know what the effect of that is? It's, it, it makes you tired, man. It wears you out. It's a burden you're not supposed to bear. And that is legalistic works righteousness. Legalism. And there are old churches that work like that. If you perform good enough, then you'll be accepted. Then you'll be in the in crowd. And everyone's walking around with a stick with which they measure themselves. But they don't only measure themselves, they measure everyone around them. 
And then when they don't measure up, they hit each other over the head with, head with their sticks. I mean, we know Christianity, uh, portions of Christianity like that, don't we? And God says, no, you're focusing on the wrong end of the branch. That end I'll take care of if you make sure you're properly plugged into me. It'll happen by my grace. If you're properly plugged into me. And, and I found what happens often if we have this performance mentality, we, we're constantly fluctuating between overconfidence and underconfidence. If you're focused on, on bearing fruit only, if you're focused on the scoreboard only, then you're looking at it, and when you do well, you're like, hey, I'm the man. <laughs> Look at me. I am so fruitful. You know, if I have to compare myself to other people, you know, pff, you know <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. You know. I, don't, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, be like arrogant or proud or something, but <sighs> you know, I am the man. <laughs> And then when you're not doing well, it's like underconfidence. Oh, I'm a worm. I can't even come to God. I can't pray anymore. I can't worship. I can't come to church because I have stumbled. And you're constantly fluctuating between overconfidence and underconfidence because you focus on the wrong end of the branch. You're looking at the scoreboard the whole time. You're constantly measuring your life. How am I doing? Instead of just focusing on relationship with Jesus. And he will sort out the rest. Anyone who ever struggles with that, or am I the only one who struggles with performance mentality? It's so easy for us. We live in a world that is so performance-driven. Performance is the ultimate. That is the thing. And relationship is often just a means to an end, to accomplish performance. You network so that you can make more profits, so you can have more you know, connections and make more profits. And, and, and relationship becomes just a tool that you use in, in, in pursuit of performance. And Jesus says, no, relationship is the most important thing. Right relationship is the most important thing, and right performance is just a natural fruit of that. He says in, in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Remember, he's talking about the Judas branches. Okay? And the branches are gathered at and thrown into the fire and burned. And what he's saying to his disciples is, that, that branch has already left. You guys who are remaining in me, you are the true branches. I just want to show you one, one other place where Jesus sort of reassures um, his disciples. In, in John 6 verse 37, it says, And all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And what he means by never cast out, if you go on reading in the context, is not I will reject him when he comes to me, but I will keep him. And he actually says it in so many words. I will raise him up on the last day. I will keep him unto eternal life because that's the will of the Father. And, and when he says it, it's interesting. Um, there are about five or so ways that you can negate something in Greek. And when, when Jesus says, I will never cast him out, he uses the strongest possible way. He uses a double negative. You've got two words for not in, in Greek. Ooh and may. And he uses both. Ooh, may, ekbalo. In other words, it'll never happen. It's unthinkable. It'll never take place. You will never be cast out. So if the Father draws you, you will come to me, and I will never cast you out. It's not even an option, the way that Jesus says it. I will keep you, and I will raise you up on the last day. Okay. So, in closing... Um, I just want to apply 
what Jesus is saying here to our discipleship. Firstly, we must realize that the goal of discipleship is connecting people to Jesus and not to ourselves. I, as a branch, don't take other branches and plug them into me. That's, that's very important because so often we do that. We try and do that. We try and sustain people that come to the faith. We try and sustain people in, through ourselves. We try and connect people to ourselves and keep them with Jesus. And that doesn't work. I am just a branch. I'm connected to the vine and every other branch must be di- directly plugged into the vine and connected to the vine and abide in the vine. When, if, if you come to this church just to be connected to Andre, you're in trouble. Andre will tell you so himself. If you don't come to this church and get connected to Jesus, then you're in trouble. If Andre is the only one keeping you here, then you're not going to stay. You're going to fall away. But if you're staying here because you're connected into Jesus, then you will be sustained and then you will be truly fruitful. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, yes, in a certain sense you do follow me, but you know you're following Christ in me and you're only following me as I follow Christ. You realize there are two commands that Paul gives there. When he says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's saying two things. He's saying, number one, follow me or imitate me. Do as I do. Number two, if I don't do what Christ is doing, don't imitate me. In other words, only imitate me as far as I imitate Christ. Only follow me as far as I follow Christ. In other words, I'm only a a temporary marker for you to see Jesus. Because I've been following him a little while longer than you. But ultimately, you connected to Jesus. This has a massive impact on how we disciple our children. Right? That means that if I want my children to be blessed and to be fruitful, I cannot constantly make sure that they're dependent on me and do everything for them. There has to come a place where I have to really start connecting them to Jesus. So they can have a relationship with Jesus for themselves. They cannot be always dependent on my relationship with Jesus. That means I've got to really pray for people that I'm discipling. That they will be able to look past me. I have to step in the background. Like John the Baptist said, I have to decrease. And he, Jesus, needs to increase. We must make sure that we are connected with Jesus. We must make sure that people we are discipling are connected with Jesus. That's the only way to fruitfulness. And the second thing is, the the goal of discipleship is abiding in Jesus, not bearing fruit. Here's the thing. If we make the ultimate goal of discipleship bearing fruit, then we're doing discipleship with our eye on the scoreboard. Then all we'll end up doing is behavior modification. We only do behavior modification. And so often in the church, we make the mistake of preaching the word like this. Now, so many people say, no, 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 no. Um, you know, don't ever preach doctrine. Only preach, you know, practical stuff. But you know, that's not what Paul did. If you go and look at Paul's letters, they all have two parts. The first part focuses on doctrine and the second part focuses on duty. The first portion focuses on belief and the second portion focuses on behavior. Why? Because behavior is a natural consequence of belief. And if you try and change behavior without changing belief, 
then you're just doing behavior modification and it doesn't last. Why do we see so many people falling away from Jesus in the church? Because there's so much behavior modification in the church where people... Behavior has changed on the surface, but their hearts have not changed. Their belief system, their worldview has not changed. Their relationship with Jesus has not changed. It doesn't last, people. That kind of Christianity doesn't work. It doesn't work. And my appeal to you this morning is, let's not get caught up in that kind of Christianity. That does like a superficial makeover, but doesn't change the heart that is focused on behavior modification and not relationship with Jesus. Let's not get caught up in that. Amen? Let us focus on the right end of the branch, the end that is connected with Jesus, and trust Him that, the re- that He'll take care of the rest. And God is faithful. He will prune us. He will let His life flow through us. And He will cause us to bear fruit. And that... Fruit bearing will involve our effort because His grace will produce godly effort in us. So often we approach Christianity with a production mentality as though I'm this factory and there must be a constant stream of good works and good products and good results on the conveyor belt of my factory, my Christian factory. And and God says, no, the Christian is not a factory of good works. It's a branch that is connected to the vine and therefore bears fruit. And the difference between production and fruit is production is something that you just do in your own strength. Fruit is something you bear because of who you are. And that is true Christianity. That is being part of the true vine, the true Israel, the fruitful vine that will fill the whole world with good fruit. And that is what Jesus is inviting us to become a part of.